Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbus and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to box to box the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dander and shortly and during the show we'll be joined by our 250 game veteran of the Victorian Premier League and former Notts County man Dean Hennessy and our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson. It's a huge week in football, always is, but there has been no bigger story from an Australian point of view than the one brewing around Ange Postacoglu, who is being widely reported as favourite to take over the reins at Scottish Premiership powerhouse Celtic. The hoops need no introduction to any football fan. As we all know, the boys' supporters are some of the most proud and passionate in the world. And while the news might be being greeted as a breakthrough for Australian football, the feedback from the fans has not been so welcoming. The man who broke the story off the back of former Bournemouth manager Eddie Hamm now pulling out of the race was the Athletics' Oliver Kay, who will join us to help us uncover whether the appointment is actually going to happen and what Ange can expect if he is appointed. And while it's been a few years since Postacoglu was in charge of the national men's side, it seems nearly as long since we've seen the Socceroos in action. And the wait ends over the next week with World Cup qualifying in the Q8 hub, one of Box to Box's most favourite experts. In fact, he was our very first guest back in 2015. John Cosmina will join us to talk through his expectations of Graham Arnold's men. And of course, the A-League regular season wraps up this weekend with some spots at the bottom of the top six still alive. We'll go through the fixtures and look ahead to the finals to wrap up the hour. In the second hour, Willem will kick off with second edition news and the latest on the Socceroos in camp and the Matildas of course about to play their final Olympic warm-ups and we'll spend plenty of time talking about football in Europe. First up with Optus Sports' Richard Bayless to talk through the Euros. We'll uh, we'll talk about the impact that COVID might have, uh, the various uh, challenges from each group and maybe a, a bit of a dark horse prediction from him. We'll talk more Europe with Dino and Dell, the Champions League and their selections on the Euros. And uh, we've always got something fun with stoppage time, Edge. But um, how are we going to cram this all in, mate? I don't know. Um, how, how would you be if you worked in the National Teams Unit of Football Australia? You've had 18 months, 20 months of no activity and all of a sudden Ollie Matildas and Socceroos all playing matches within three or four weeks of each other and all at the same time. They'll be stretched to the limit but they'll be loving it and I'm loving it mm. because our national teams are back in action and mm. it's been a, such a long wait with them. Rob, as you mentioned, the top story this week definitely has been Ange Postacoglu. His reported move to Celtic looks set to proceed with a six-figure release from Yokohama, reportedly agreed. And I say reportedly because it has been a bit of a murky story. There's not actually too much concrete information floating around. Questions have arisen as to whether he possesses the required UEFA coaching licence at this point, a hurdle, of course, faced last year by Kevin Musket. Rob, as you mentioned, a highly emotional uh, story both here and in Scotland and wading through all those reports has been difficult at times, but the common thread that has sort of been there throughout the past week, this story broke Saturday morning Australia time, is that there's enough credible voices mm. in, in Scotland, here in Australia and in Japan as well, that it looks like it is going to happen. Oh, there's no question that um, it is genuinely uh, on the brink of happening. All of the credible news sources are, are reporting it and uh, and what I have noticed, uh, day by day the the European press is uh, is learning and understanding more about Ange Postacoglu, so they're, they're moving a little uh, from the fiasco of the Eddie Howe scenario 
to who is Ange Postacoglu, what are his credentials, um, and they're now recognising him as a serial winner uh, who plays the style of football that Celtic expect, and that uh, he may well have uh, something that um, that you know uh, the fans over in uh, in Scotland are not aware of just yet, which obviously the management at Celtic do, but they don't the management that is don't have the respect of the fans as we speak, but um, Edge, what do you think? Well, it's been um, quite entertaining looking at the Twitter mm. feeds of Scottish fans blowing up about who's Ange Postacoglu. Then they think, thought he was Greek and <laughs> now they realise he's Australian. So, um, yeah, that's been an interesting little aspect to it. But, gee, um, it's mm. all positive, isn't it? Mm. It's such a big news uh, story for Australian football and, mm. and we, we all um, love and uh, respect Ange. So he's, he's well, we forget he's in contention for the Sunderland job back in 2017 as right. well. So he's, yeah. he's been on the radar for a few years now. Yeah, this is a great job for him, actually, because I think uh, we all know his approach, his understanding of the game, in particular mm. the connection to clubs, culture, and histories. And mm. he will um, uh, he, he will do very very well. I, I think the big question that we'll all have, and we'll, I'll be interested to when we have uh, the discussion a little bit later on uh, in the show, but um, is just whether he can hold his temper because we know he can get a bit grumpy, <laughs> and um, and whether the fans will um, will react to that in any way, in particular um, if they have a, a rough patch early and whether they want to you know, get on his back early in his tenure because we know that his teams take a little while to adapt to his style of play, don't they, Willem? Yeah, well, that's the big question if he's going to be given time. And I tend to think that he won't fail. He might just be sacked too early if he's given the chance by Celtic. So more on that and uh, and end with Oliver Kay later in the hour. Former Socceroos skipper Mark Milligan will retire at the end of the A-League season and will remain with MacArthur to begin his coaching career under Ante Milicic. Milligan played in seven different countries and won 80 Socceroos caps across his career and he's famously one of just 62 men to have been selected for four World Cups. And Michael and Rob, he's admitted uh, in the past couple of days that his career probably got, could have gone to, to greater levels uh, at club level, but he always put the soccer in the Australian game first. Many spells, of course, in the A-League. And, of course, he played a role. shouldn't be forgotten in uh, achieving pay parity when he was uh, captain of the Socceroos for the Matildas. So great to see, though. He's not going to be lost to the game and it's going to be exciting to see what he can do as a coach. I mean, what a remarkable career he's had. You forget how... Um how significant it's been. You know, four World Cups, mm. three Asian Cups, can captain at the 2017 Confederation Cup, Beijing Olympics in, 20, in 2008, 80 international caps, not to mention the... How many A-League clubs did he play for? Well, he started at Sydney, then went to Newcastle, then Victory, and then MacArthur at the end. Yeah, so, um, wow, what a, what a career. He's a superstar of Australian football. Do you think he gets recognition for that, Rob? No, I don't think so outside of football that he does. I think within football he, um, does, he yeah. does, but uh, as a genuine Australian sporting icon, I don't think he does. Uh, but um, hopefully that'll resolve itself in the future because uh, on top of all of that, he's just a good bloke. He is, because I had an opportunity to... I bumped into him at the Women's World Cup in 2019 in France and we had a, a cup of coffee and he was just all over it. He, he knew ins and outs of uh, the Matildas and what was going on. I mean, he's just a um, very decent football person. Over to South America, a huge story brewing here. Argentina has been stripped of the Copper America hosting rights two weeks before it was set to begin as they face an increase in COVID-19 cases. Conmebol has stated Brazil will host the tournament instead to the light of President Jair Bolsonaro, although his chief of staff has warned the deal is not yet official. Bolsonaro has been widely criticised for opening the doors to his country, which has lost over 460,000 lives during the pandemic. Michael, this Copper America, as we get closer to kickoff date, is unfortunately just getting sadder and sadder. Firstly, there'll be no Colombia. They were set to be a host. Now there'll be no Argentina, and I say no Argentina. The teams will be there, but they won't be hosting it. Uh, we're not going to have the traditional format with the guest sides as well. Uh, this is an instance where uh, a tournament hasn't been rewarded for, for pushing on. 
Yeah, so, um, look, uh, South America is in the grips of uh, its fourth wave of, uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's very, very serious. Peru during the week um, revised up their deaths from 80,000 to over 350,000. They now are the worst performing country per head or per capita in the world. So uh, Colombia's... Um, uh, teetering on the pre- precipice of economic failure. So there is some really serious stuff happening in South America. And um, in the context of that Copper America, you just wonder whether they might have stuck it away or put it away. Oh, yeah, but I, I, I know, I, I've been, my, I know my refrain that. has been similar throughout. I, I just talk about, um, you know, the mental health of the people and, uh, and look, uh, if it's that bad, how much worse can it be if, uh, if you, well, let's say, you know, we're assuming that, that, that fans aren't allowed to travel, that if, if the only travellers are the players and, and their support crew, then, uh, geez, it can't get any worse than it is and uh, you've got to give the people some respect. Well, he's got the, the Brazilian borders are open, so you know, that's the approach that they've taken. So uh, you, you will be able to travel if you're from South America anyway, yeah. Over to Europe, Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea were on Saturday crowned champions of Europe with Kai Havertz's goal, the difference in the final against Manchester City. Edison off his line. Havertz! Chelsea in front. Kai Havertz with his first ever goal in the Champions League has made the breakthrough. Chelsea midfielder N'Golo Kante was judged man of the match, while City boss Pep Guardiola was criticised for leaving Kante's opposite number, Fernandinho, out of his 11. It was Chelsea's second European triumph following the Roberto Di Matteo-led win of 2012. Rob, I think that it's nice that, you know, as a, as a neutral, Chelsea got at least one of the three major honours they were up for as a club, including the FA Cup and the Women's Champions League final. And for City, that all-important European holy grail goes unattained for at least a year longer. Yeah, it does. And I look, I know we're going to reflect on our selections in the second hour of the show, so I'll just park um, some comment about that um, until we have He likes that. to make it about himself, doesn't he? Really? No, t- well, what, what makes you assume that I'm going to do that anyway? You'll have to wait. Did until you see that Patrick? Hang on, yeah. he's asked me a question. I'm trying to respond to it. No, and, uh, made a the, the, the point that we're making here is... Uh, no, I said Willem's asked me a question. Oh, okay. I see. Is, is that, uh, yeah, uh, out th- he was outthought uh, Guardiola by Tuchel. There's no question about that. Um, and Golo Kante, he just had the free run of the midfield. Um, he uh, he uh, There was a, a story I heard about um, during the week where uh, uh, ESPN put up the, the three great midfields of all time and uh, I can't remember the two uh, sets of three off the top of my head but the third one was in Golo Kante uh, on his own and uh, he played <laughs> he, like, he plays uh, like three people doesn't he yeah so we'll talk about it more in a second now back home now APL managing director Danny Townsend has indicated the A-League may return to the October to May schedule following last week's new broadcast partnership speaking on the global game Townsend also said breaking for FIFA windows is firmly on the agenda. Any decision over domestic match calendars will have to be agreed with Football Australia, who retained control over that aspect of the game during the New Year's independent split. Michael, you and I have been pretty firm on that a winter switch isn't the way to go for the A-League going forward, uh, so I'm strongly in favour of the return to uh, to the October start. Midweek games, we've seen this year that they can work. We've had far too many of them, in my opinion, but that's because of, of the uh, condensed coronavirus season, so I think We'll just go back to playing matches on weekends and then you can have your international breaks and slot in a few midweek matches to accommodate for that. Not too far from what we started with. Well, the mail here is that uh, the, the, the timing of the season is locked into the broadcast deal and despite uh, Football Australia's efforts to um, have the winter um, seasons aligned, it won't happen because it's commercial suicide if they do. 
Okay, we're going to talk to Oliver Kay from The Athletic. Oliver had a great career with the Times before he became one of the uh, the big names that The Athletic poached and uh, he is one of the authorities on European football and wrote an article this week about Ange Postacoglu off the back of Eddie Howe. Uh, so we want to get a bit of a sense of uh, his thoughts on how this played out and what he forecasts is, is going to happen uh, from uh, Europe and on the ground over there. Stick around, it's going to be an interesting chat with Oliver Kay from The Athletic after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the yes, most this is Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talk Sport. Now, earlier in the week, when the story about Ange Postecoglou blew up, we all looked at the copy we were reading and thinking, "Is this for real?" We've all known Ange has had aspirations to uh, to coach in Europe for many, many years. We we know his stated ambition is to coach Liverpool one day, but uh, uh, he, uh, as we know, has got the pedigree. He's coached Australia. He's won an Asian Cup. He's won the J-League with uh, Yokohama F. Marinos, and it is legit. We know that uh, a man who wrote a, a story uh, on, on this very um, issue is uh, a senior sports writer with The Athletic. Uh, I've read his copy for many years with The Times, Oliver Kay, and he's on the line right now. Oliver, how are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks, guys. So, Oliver, uh, were you just as dumbfounded when you heard the name Ange Postacoglu as we were to see that he was in contention? I was surprised. I mean, he's a guy who's, I mean... I, I, I will be honest, I, I'm not somebody who's all over Australian football or Japanese football. I'm very familiar with the name and um, and obviously Robo from the World Cup. And I, I remember that he that, that he was at, uh, at Yokohama, but I hadn't really heard of, uh, of him linked to, you know, with this vacancy itself. All the talk was of Eddie Howe, and then um, those talks of Eddie Howe collapsed at the end of that last week, and, and it, it emerged that. Um, They've been talking to Ange Postecoglou for for some time, and and um, it seems it seems there that, that they're close to an appointment there. Um, I mean, it seems to have moved on, particularly over the last few days. But it, it was felt to be uh, very much moving in that direction. And yeah, it, it was it was a surprise because so much of the talk had been of Eddie Howe, and then sort of a number of Scottish managers, and then people like Roy Keane and and. Um, and Ange Postecoglou had, had kind of gone under the radar a bit, I, I would say, in terms of the um, just the kind of it. So Oliver, you know, we we know we've uh, had success or. We're sending Australian sporting coaches to, to England over the years. Trevor Bayliss, of course, won the Ashes. Eddie Jones nearly won mm-hmm. the Rugby World Cup. So uh, in terms of sporting pedigree, we know that uh, that in uh, the UK, in Scotland, that um, that, that, that we're uh, recognised as sports people, but certainly not for, for, for football. So um, insofar as the Eddie Howe story is concerned, that, that really uh, uh, was a, a, a story that unravelled very, very quickly. Uh, to, to suggest that, that Ange Postacoglu was sitting there waiting in line, um, that, that seems to have gotten under the nose of, of the fans at Hampden Park. Um, on the on one hand, they were waiting for Eddie Howe to be announced and then suddenly the management's got uh, Ange Postacoglu uh, lined up and ready to go. To be honest, I, I think if, if any of Celtic fans are, are thinking they shouldn't have lined up an alternative, I, I think they're absolutely right to Lined mm-hmm. up an alternative because those talks with Eddie Howe dragged on for more than two months, and um, I, I sort of got the impression. I mean, I know he was sort of nailed on with a bookmaker saying um, appointment any day now, and I'd, I'd spoken to people who, who were more sceptical about whether it would happen. So I, I thought, well, I hope Celtic are putting all their eggs in the Eddie Howe basket because if this if this falls down, they're going to be left. Um, with a blank canvas on, um, you know, at the start of June, and and um, yeah, it, it, it appears that they, they they had to their credit 
um, got a plan B lined up. And I'm sure there'll be people there'll be people saying, yeah, um, he shouldn't be anybody's plan B. But you know, it's a great club, and and it'd be a great job for him to get, especially when he's been. Um, uh, last thing to get to Europe for, for such a long time. We have been amused and entertained with the reaction to um, just the mention of Ange Postacoglu in the early news reporting. Um, Australian football fans were getting online and sharing some of the outrageous uh, comments by the Scottish football fans. It was uh, obviously <laughs> they didn't know who he was. Um, then they thought he was Greek. They didn't know he was Australian. Then they worked out he he coached Australia at the World Cup and and then a Japanese club. So we did see the response was, I mean, it was fairly predictable, but it was uh, pretty entertaining. I mean, has there been a lot of talk about Ange Postacoglu who? Has there been a lot of uh, European football <laughs> luminaries who you just thought, who is this bloke? I, I think, I mean, as I, I, I said, I mean, just, just, being, just being really honest, I mean, I, I, I remembered, his, remembered him from the World Cup and, and, and I knew he was, he was working in Japan now and I'd, I'd probably seen his name um, crop up occasionally but I, I because I because you know my con my focus is is all on European football and, and particularly English football, you know, and as to a lesser extent Scottish football he, he, you know, he's not a name that I was massively familiar with his with his C V and and his philosophy and so on. And I've I have i read up a lot of people I uh, read up a, a lot of, on him over the last week or so and I've I've um spoken to a few people within the group and they say, Oh no, no, no. He, he's really good and, and, and that, that they point out that the fact that he, he was hired by the City Football Group, it, it's not just, you know, um, I mean, we, we see coaches move to you know, the J League or J, J1 League as it is now, and um, it, doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're elite coaches, um, but he was hired by the City Football Group, which obviously owns, um, or part owns um, Yokohama, and, and that was said to me to be a significant endorsement of of how good he is and, I, and I've, I've read a, a lot over the last few days where, where people have been absolutely raving about him and, and, and ex-players have been raving about him and saying you know the way he engages you know the way he inspires players and and, and the football he insists on and, and, and the, the way he motivates uh, something that some fans will really want to and funnily enough the, 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 I mean, Eddie Howard been the the, the, the favourite, and, and he's a really good manager. But he, he worked absolute wonders in, in, in English football with Bournemouth. But there was a bit a bit of scepticism among some Celtic fans about him. You know, despite being somebody who'd been linked with Arsenal and linked with the England job in the past and linked with Everton and West Ham and so, there there was a sense that oh, look, he's he's some outsider who's who's coming to. Who's coming to Glasgow? Is he going to get it? Is he going to get the Scottish football team, the old firm rival? Um, so I think it's the same questions really that that will be asked about about Ange Postecoglou. And from what I can gather about his personality, he will absolutely relish the the rivalry and embrace that rivalry and embrace the the, the passion of uh, of the Celtic fans and and sort of try to harness that because um, it, it's it's. A unique job, I, I would say. So, well, I mean, Celtic Rangers are unique jobs in that you have to be successful at those clubs. It's not like being at a, at a mid-ranking uh, Premier League club or a, or, or an ambitious Championship club. It, there's so much pressure on on and focus on those managers. Um, Steve Gerrard has done brilliantly at Rangers to turn it around. Brett Rogers did brilliantly at um, 
uh, Celtic player for that. But it, it's um, yeah, you don't want to be go there and be the second best team in Glasgow. On behalf of all the Australian fans who love Ange Postacoglu, just what is he walking into? I did read uh, that uh, a few weeks ago the Celtic CEO had his house firebombed and uh, his car set alight. So um, the the level of passion and intense, um, um, the intense, as you mentioned, scrutiny on the coach. But just for Australian listeners, just how hostile will the fans be if things don't go well for Ange Postacoglu? Well, the, the, the Peter Norwell, the, the, the thing that the chief executive has, um, it is really not clear what went on there and who was behind it and whether it was anything linked to football or indeed to Celtic or, or, or anything like that. It, it, it's, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to um, sort of lump that in with, 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 with the sort of discuss, discussing the melting, the melting pot of, of Glasgow football, but it, it is genuinely, I, I would say it's, a much fiercer rivalry than any of the rivalries that we have in the Premier League in, in, in England. Um, it's, a, it's a unique rivalry. I mean, it's, you know, it, it was based on um, religion and uh, in, in the past, and I think it is still to a small extent. But, it, but it's, it's like the, 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 the football rivalry has overtaken the, the religion, and it is fierce. If you've been to an old firm game, it's really fierce. And, and as I said, you don't want to be the Manager of the second best team in in, in Glasgow. He, he, from, I mean Neil, Neil Lennon, who was um, managing Celtic last year. I think the first nine games, I think it was, they won eight and drew, drew one. Uh, everything seemed to be fine. Um, they went into this all firm game against Rangers in perhaps late October or thereabouts. They lost that, and the world turned against Neil Lennon, who was, who was you know, a great Celtic player. Had, had success in his previous Spurs manager, had had success in his second Spurs manager, but suddenly, because they were no longer top dog in, in Glasgow, there was you know there was intense pressure on him, and it you know that negativity sort of just overcame the, the whole club really, and 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 you know he ended up sacked in um, in February, and it, you know there were protests against him, and um, it's not yeah as I said it's it's not somewhere where you want to go and. and I, I would imagine that if you succeed at Celtic or you succeed at Rangers and, and you turn the tide as Steve Gerrard has and, and as Martin O'Neill did previously and Graham Sinus did with Rangers back in the 80s, that must you will rarely get hero worship like that as a, as a manager because the fans there are so passionate, being so much to them. The flip side of it is that if you go there and... Um, and, and fail as, as Pedro Cachinha did, did um, Portuguese manager who took over at Rangers. Um, you go there and fail, you are derided. You, you, you know, it's not pleasant. Um, you can go there and sort of just do a good job, but not quite be able to turn the tide, and, and, and it will be difficult. So I, I think it's very, very important for um, Ange Postacoglu if he goes there, as we expect him to, it's very important his credibility that he, he sort of has a few early wins and it doesn't make a slow start and, and, and doesn't come off second best in that, in, in that first old firm game against Rangers and, and doesn't have a, an embarrassing result in Europe as um, a lot of you know Celtic Rangers managers that have done in, in more recent years it, it's, it's, it's so pressurised anyway and I think that pressure just builds and builds and builds if you're um, if you don't get 
an early couple of wins under your belt, and that would have been the same for Eddie Howe as, mm. as well had he, had he gone there and, and and not been able to sort of emerge from the um, you know f- f- from the shadow of, of, of Steve Gerrard's Rangers. So it's very very pressurised job. <laughs> um, and the one the, the, the other thing that just sorry, sorry for rambling on, but it, it, I, I was reading about uh, about Bostikoglu uh, and his relations with the media. He's very abrasive, very feisty. Very outspoken. That could be a really good thing in terms of you know just making him a sort of cult cult figure and making the you know the fans really rally around him. Um, as long as he's as long as his sort of feisty relationships with the media are conducted from a position of strength, I, as long as results on the pitch are good. I think if, he, if, he, if results aren't what he would like, and if it's a bit of a slow start, which is would be understandable, and if he's then sort of fighting fire with fire with the media. That can become more problematic, I think. So um, I think a lot of it will be dictated by results. Oliver, it's fascinating to listen to you talk about it. Um, we know Andrew's fire. We, several of us have been on the uh, the sharp end of his uh, his death stare, and um, he knows how to give it. But uh, hopefully, as you say, it is on the end of uh, of some good results. We're talking about the proud club of uh, the Lions of Lisbon, who you know, as anyone who uh, is listening would most likely know, that Celtic are the first ever team to have won a, a, a European or the equivalent of the Champions League back uh, back then. And uh, uh, I think uh, if I was Andrew, I'd be getting on my knees and saying a prayer to Brother Wolf. Um, the Morris brother who founded uh, Celtic uh, mm-hmm. all those years ago back in 1887 because he might need every single thing going for him but uh, look he's a chance he's been a serial winner and uh, and hopefully for uh, for Celtic and um, an Australian football sake uh, he's a success Oliver thanks for joining us we're really grateful um, we didn't get to talk about England and the Euros uh, we do wish you well um, we uh, you know we only hate you, you when might. we play the really? Euros <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't say like it. Yeah, we, we, we do wish you were. We do wish you were. No, thank you. <laughs> Good on you. Oliver Kay from The Athletic. Thanks for joining us, mate. Good. Okay, stick around. We're going to talk to John Cosmina, our very own Socceroo, the first guest ever on Box to Box. We're going to talk Socceroos. All those years ago, Rob. 2015. Yes, Seems correct. like only yesterday. On Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. It's been a long, long time since we saw the Socceroos on the park. Uh, well. Matches have been played in Europe, um, competitive matches, and even in the Middle East where our boys are right now trying to contend in the second round of World Cup qualifiers. One of our favourites. In fact, our very first guest I said off the top of the show on Box to Box back in 2015 was uh, soccer legend himself, John Cosmina. Welcome back to the show, Cosy. Thanks, Rob. Was it that long ago? It was, mate. It was that <laughs> season where the, uh, Leicester City um, uh, defied the odds, 5,001, and, uh, and you were the very first guest we had on our show, mate. Well, how about that? So uh, it's I'm pretty impressive, because isn't it? I mean, uh, we've all lost a few brain cells by then, but um, I'll tell you someone who maybe not have lost some brain cells is Graham Arnold. But um, I just want to get your opinion, obviously being a, a former uh, cockroach of great, uh, great pedigree. How do you think he's feeling after it's been, what, 560 days since the Socceroos have been together? They've been thrown together in difficult uh, conditions in the Middle East when it's very, very hot, and they've got a number of games that normally we would expect it to sort of sail through. But how, how do you think uh, Graham Arnold's feeling at the moment? Oh, look, he's like anybody, mate. He's only human. He'll be um, somewhat apprehensive. But Arnie's fairly confident. He's he's really, um, I guess, to find a, a way of going about coaching with the national team. He's, he's always very, very positive. 
um, about the outcomes, um, almost trying to predict an outcome to create one uh, to some extent. But look, Arnie's like any coach, I suppose. He, well, I suppose I know, he is happiest when he's in a track suit with a pair of boots on out in the pitch. And he hasn't been able to really do that for quite a while now. Getting into camp, um, especially after such a long hiatus, um, will be such a motivator for him to be buzzing. So I think that sort of, um, I guess, um, the manner will reflect on the playing group as well. And uh, I expect them to be buzzing tomorrow morning as well. The teams that we're coming up against, some of them have had uh, pretty ordinary preparation. Some of their leagues have been in recess, not really, uh, not really playing in the Middle Eastern competitors. This time of year, they don't normally play, so it's uh, it could, in one hand, the weather might work in their favour, but on the other hand, uh, the the whole um, component of our W uh, of our A League contingent might work in our favour because they're coming out of what's been a very competitive season. Do you obviously there's four games in quick succession, so the, the squads will be rotated heavily. But what do you think about um, the, the squad he's put together, and in particular some of the W uh, some of the A-League uh, uh, entrants for the first time, Ruin Tonyak in particular from Central Coast? What are your thoughts on that? Arnie will stick with the, the tried and true bloke, the ones that have, have done the job for him in the past. But I think it's, uh, he's talked about this, and, and Ange Postacogli did as well. You need to have a – you can't just have a squad – of, uh, of 20 odd plays, you've got to have 30 plus minimum that can step into the, the breach any time that's necessary. So, but I think they'll all get game time uh, because of the conditions. Um, but he's got a big squad there, and it's great to see that you've got someone like Ruan Tonyak, who a couple of years ago wasn't on the scrap heap, but he certainly wasn't setting the world on fire at Melbourne City when he was there. You know, he'd left Adelaide and things weren't going that well, but he found a, um, a new lease on life at the Mariners, and he's, he's had an exceptional season. He's been outstanding, and one of the major reasons that they're, well, they're not third at the moment, but they're in the top six and uh, and pretty much assured of a place in the final. So, uh, But you've got your Jamie McLaren's as well and Ryan Grant and uh, Ryan McGowan's back in the squad as well, yeah. which is, is an interesting one. So um, that'll have an impact, obviously, on the local competition and the finals coming up. But uh, your national team's always a bit more important than the your local club stuff, and um, I think it's great that we've got a, a strong contingent of A-League players in a, in what you'd call your, 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 I guess, your larger national squad. This is Box to Box. We're talking to legend of Australian football, John Cosmina, and a, a bloke who's just exploded into the public consciousness over the weekend was Kenny McDougall with Blackpool um, at Wembley. Uh, I mean, you don't fluke two goals um, in a big uh, playoff match like that to get uh, your team promoted for... Um, uh, for fun, so uh, I mean, he, he's a he's a guy that, um, as I said, is flown under the radar. What, what's your what's your knowledge of him? Is it your opinion? Uh, can, can he uh, be uh, one of the players that makes the difference for us? Well, you look at your Jackson Irvine type character, which is what Kenny Dougal's probably like. He's a, a hardworking, a grafting midfielder. You know, playing in the lower leagues in the UK, he actually played at the club I coached at previously, Brisbane City, as a youngster uh, before going to Holland. So. You know, he had a – I mean, he didn't play uh, a lot in Holland um, at a really high level, but um, the fact is that it's a good school, the Dutch football, and he learned a bit there, and um, he's certainly grinding it out in the competition at Stoke uh, – not with Stoke now, with um, with his team that won on the weekend. Uh, yeah, and he um, – I think he can be a bit of a, a, a bit of a bolter, um, but, you know, he'll do a job for the national team. It's good to see, you know, players like him that have – have gone overseas and, and chanced their arm and 
um, have flown a bit under the radar. I mean, he's been on the fringes of selection, I think, for, for quite a while now. I mean, the one thing that Arnie has done exceptionally well um, is he's found anyone remotely possible to have Australian heritage that's possible to play for the soccer is he, he's, he's tracked them all down and kept an eye on them. So he's, <laughs> he's done very – how did he do that? He's done very well. You know, Harry Sutar, obviously, um, uh, Martin Boyle. I mean, he's just he's, – He missed Lyndon Dykes, though. He did miss Lyndon Dykes, but he's, he's lifted rocks up everywhere, hasn't he? How did, how did he actually do that? No, you just got to ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I mean, all of these kids have um, – well, like Martin Boyle might be a different case, but um, if you start asking around, you ask enough questions and you ask enough people, sooner or later you're going to find some answers. And he's, he's come up with some good ones. I mean, Harry Sood is one that... Mm. Um, yeah, he's a good one. Yeah. He's actually progressed a hell of a lot. Yeah. You know, it's, um, and he could become a mainstay for a long time because he's only, what, 24 years of age or something? Just on that, Cosy, uh, before Willem asks you a question, if China had blooded two plays in their national team that had never been to China previously, the first <laughs> time that they'd ever been to China was the day that they played for China, we'd be asking questions. So surely some well, other... Who was that Canadian bloke that won us a gold medal a few years ago in the skiing and he'd never been to Australia? <laughs> exactly. We claimed him. <laughs> we claimed him, that's right. So Harry and, uh, and Martin, they'd never been to Australia until they'd actually put on a shirt. I mean, that is a bit unique. Aussies through and through. It's different, but look, they qualify as Australian citizens, so um, the rule is what it is, and you've got to make the most of that. Take advantage of it. You know, you can't turn around. You've got a, a fantastic centre half or a, a, a great natural dribbling wide midfielder or attacker. Um, you know, just because they hadn't been to Australia, but they've got Australian parent, it doesn't mean they're not Australian. That's true. John, the world's just... a much bigger place than, or a much smaller place than it, it used to be. It's more. Um, oh, used to be big because we couldn't travel, but now it's small. So, you know, it's quite – and I think you'll see more of that kind of circumstance um, over the years to come. A lot of parents, you know, families end up – you know, the kids are born here, but they move overseas at a young age. It's like um, my days in the Socceroos when a lot of the – you know, the well, you could ask, I guess, the question in reverse. A lot of the Socceroos I've played with are actually born in, in the UK or in Europe. Mm. Uh, they've come out here and taken Australian citizenship. So – um, it's the same sort of thing in a way, isn't it? Yeah, fair point. John, just going back to the midfield, it's the one part of uh, the field which I'm looking most forward to watching across this group of qualifiers. It's probably where we're a little bit short heading in. No Aaron Moy, Luongo, Tom Rogic. These guys have been mainstays for the past sort of five years. Jimmy Jego missing as well. In their place, uh, been selected Connor Metcalf, Riley McGree, Denny Jean Rowe, three guys who have all come through the A-League. How well placed do you think uh, the A-League has, has them to, uh, to make an impact in these qualifiers well, and going forward? Denny Jean Rowe has blossomed um, at Melbourne City. He's about uh, MacArthur. I mean, he's a MacArthur, isn't he? And Riley McGree, I was just reading an article about him, how much he's actually improved because he's he just played a bucket load of games at Birmingham. So he's he's really, really comfortable. So, and, look, he was a great player before he left. He was a virtually a lady on and I'm glad to see um, he's in there. And who was the other one you mentioned? Uh, Connor Metcalf. Yeah, Connor Metcalf's the one that um, I think's improved a lot. I mean, he's still young, uh, but he's had a standout season at Melbourne City as well. And, um, I mean, he was on the fringes. Uh, you know, he's obviously an Olympic uh, player as well. But he, um, I think he's been sensational for Melbourne City this year. Very, very solid. You know, whether he plays a little bit deeper and can play that, that holding role or he loves to get forward and can attack. He's very, very comfortable on the ball. So I think it's exciting to get players like that in the, in the competition. And then you've still got your Moyes and your Rogiches, um and Luongos to, you know, to be available further down the track. 
Yeah, true. You, you've got to blood these players, don't you? Cosy, uh, great to have you back on. Great to be talking about the Socceroos again. Um, we'll um, obviously have a, a more difficult time in the third round of qualifying as things get um, uh, really serious. But um, but we should get through this without, uh, well, too much difficulty. And um, and hopefully we can be optimistic. It's next year, the World Cup, um, about appearing in, uh, in Qatar 2022. Thanks for joining us, Cosy. No problem, guys. Thanks. John Cosmina talking Socceroos. Okay, uh, stick around. After the break, we are going to uh, talk A League. We're going to wrap up the regular season, which finishes this weekend, and uh, we're going to look ahead to uh, to the finals, which um, it, it should be a really exciting competition. I don't think Melbourne City are uh, a walk up start for this one. There's a few contenders who who might just uh, spoil the party. So stick around. A League after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of this all. This is Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talksport. Enjoyed our chat with Cosy. Uh, takes us back. Well, what's that? Nearly. Um six and a half years ago to when we first started the show. He's always been good to us, the great man. Uh, as have Chemist Warehouse, of course. We wouldn't have had a show if it wasn't for Chemist Warehouse. Mario Tascani, Rutan Farakala, the great man, my friends, out at Chemist Warehouse head office. Get great savings right now at that very place, Chemist Warehouse. There is INC, plant protein, chocolate or vanilla, one kilogram variants for 34.99 each. I like my harmony singers. 25% off the Bondo Protein Vegan 1 kilogram range. Now just $29.99 each and 40% off the entire Musashi range. Remember, Chemist Warehouse is making it easier for you to get your essential items. In addition to visiting your local store, you can click and collect to save time at chemistwarehouse.com.au or order online by Australia Post and get free shipping on orders over $50. Or call and ask for same-day home delivery. Fees and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, where the great savings gentlemen are every single day. And that voice in the background, of course, was our friend Michael Burrows from Brown Music, uh, who uh, wrote and composed that jingle and whose studios we have broadcast this show on. Was yeah. that his cash register as well? Ka-ching. It would have been. Well, we've seen his studios. He loves mm. a little of, uh, um, memorabilia in yeah. the studios, doesn't he? He does indeed. Hope Michael's going well. We are getting to the business end, the pointy end of the A-League season, guys, and finally we're starting to work out who is actually going to be in the top six. We've had a couple confirmed this week, which are pretty important or quite uh, Quite good, if you like, for, for want of a better term. For different reasons, they are Brisbane and the Central Coast Mariners. The Raw, of course, beat Perth on Wednesday night. That's going to be their 12th finals appearance in 16 seasons of the A-League. 10 of 11, too. Yeah. 10 of the past 11. Um, yeah, that, that's excellent. Uh, and... He's continued to put faith in youth as Warren Moon, Wenzel Halls, Danzaki and Champness uh, were his front three starters. Uh, you'd often see that early in the season, but as the season's gone on, those three guys have, have stood the test of time and he's also brought on uh, Jesse Daly and Alex Parsons, who he's found a bit out of at the back end of the season. And for the Mariners, Rob, it's time to uh, to gloat. Uh, mm-hmm. They will be there for the first time since oh, 2013, you know, well, 14. The Graham gloat. Arnold era, Rob. I'm saving my gloating to... Uh, my so if you can get something else in about the Chelsea game, Rob. No, I won't. That's for next hour. Um, but uh, now, look, you know I, I just love the Central Coast. I love the region and uh, and I want to see it succeed. So I'm just pleased that they, they didn't fall out of the finals. Uh, and they will at least have a chance to to play off for um, for the championship title. And uh, uh, you know, I think they deserve too much of the season yeah. they've had. And did you... Late night call from from Gaddy when it was confirmed that they'd be in. Gaddy, mate, he was just celebrating, tweeting. Uh, He's tweeting his little heart out, wasn't he? He was <laughs> big man. He's very happy. No, fantastic achievement by Central Coast and uh, a wonderful coaching achievement by Alan Sajik. So well done to Central Coast. But we shouldn't um, gloss over the effort of Brisbane and Warren Moon mm. um, in particular. And didn't Dan Zaki put Perth to the sword? Mm-hmm. He was. 
he was fantastic. And the players that uh, he's put his faith in are young ones primarily, and they've got the job done. They certainly have. But with the confirmation of those two sides being in the finals, mean that there's a couple that are confirmed as going to miss once again. They are Perth Glory and the Western Sydney Wanderers. For Richard Garcia and his glory side, though, I think it's been a pass mark, his first season uh, in the top job. They had a fair few matches to play in the back end of the season compared to the other sides. They had the fixture build up, and they did try to uh, to chase down that, that uh, points deficit. Nearly got there in the end, but just had a little bit too much to do. Not a pass mark, though, for Carl Robinson and the Wanderers. We've been trying to work out how this jigsaw uh, was going to play out all season. We finally got an end product, and that is that they're going to miss the finals for the fourth consecutive season. And Rob, his comments pre-game ahead of the Brisbane um, Brisbane Raw game were very interested. He said, there's not enough vocal leaders in the dressing room. He said, I've brought in all these leaders, but none of them are vocal enough. I have to be the loudest voice, which is disappointing. Now, strangely enough, they went on to, uh, to win that match, but it's just another sign that still at the end of the season, he's somewhat at odds with a playing group, which he's, you know, he's largely brought in the entire group. Oh, no, no question about that. I think it's all on Carl Robinson really here because, you know, it is in on him to select, or was to select the uh, the squad. Um, he, it's an, in his own image. Um, so, uh, you know, he's got to find those voices uh, to uh, to represent that leadership and someone who's got a big enough voice and the ability to match to uh, to uh, represent that, um, that club, which is has been, you know, uh, on the uh, the outer for, for so uh, many of the most recent years, and uh, and as, as I've said so many times, uh, that um, you know the. The A-League needs the Western Sydney Wanderers to be up and about. They were such a colourful and vibrant uh, part of the competition uh, when they first joined. And, and, you know, really, it's they've never got their mojo back since they left Parramatta Stadium for the rebuild. And um, and, and that's just a, a disappointing thing for, for the A-League, I reckon. He's got egg, goopy egg all over his face. Yeah, mm. mate, uh, Mr. Robinson. So mm. he left. Uh, it'll be long pre long off season, and he'll have to reboot his uh, his change room and find some leaders who can mm. speak. I think you'd be relieved that they're, they're, I mean, Perth Glory, fair pass mark. The Jets, they have they gave a reasonable account of themselves, even though they're probably going to win the wooden spoon. But, uh, I know, Melbourne Victory could still yeah, win. I know, exactly. <laughs> he's probably relieved Jets. that uh, Western United and the Victory, but, no, but I'm, I'm shooting to your thunder. Dino, a team that's been under the radar for the past 12 weeks has been Sydney FC. Now, it's probably been fair enough to write them off as having had their worst season under Steve Corica this season as he's had set such a high bar across his first two. But they now find themselves, put simply, one win away from the grand final. They're going to finish second. They've won their last four. They've picked up points in 11 of their last 12. And they've got the uh, the Sydney FC fan dream scenario ticking over. LaFondra and Bobo. Um, not that people were unsure how they were going to go together, but as the professionals they are, they've found a way to make it work. Uh, how do you see them tracking for the finals? I think Bimby's done a great job uh, there. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wonderful coach, uh, obviously under the tutelage of of um, Graham Arnold and was his assistant for many years. And and I think I think he's just got a really, really good sound understanding one of the game and how to behave with the players, whether they're the, the experienced ones and just keep them nice and calm and then look at the young boys and bring them through. And, and I think they've just got a really good balance. So I, I'm not really surprised and and I can see them having a real, real hot go here. Ominously for the rest of the competition, I think Sydney are going to find it easier to replace McGowan, Redmayne and Grant than Melbourne City are to replace McLaren, Metcalf and Good. On to the final point, uh, we're going to talk about the Newcastle Jets and you might be thinking, why are you talking about the team that are down in, in 12th and aren't going to play finals? Well, they might just avoid the wooden spoon, Rob. They enter this round just a point ahead of victory, but there's been uh, a few ructions in their coaching ranks late on Thursday. Craig Deans has come out and said he's not going to be there next season. 
and oh, he won't be there as the head coach anyway. We know he's been at the club for a long, long time. Uh, reports, unconfirmed reports at this stage, but just worth putting out there that apparently the three owners of the Jets, being Western United, Western Sydney and Sydney FC, have offered Arthur Pappas, who recently had the job at Kagoshima in Japan, to uh, to come and be the new boss. They've offered him uh, well, an A-League equivalent of a war chest to come and rebuild the club and make them more attractive to potential buyers to get the club off the hands of those uh, three competitors. Well, they need to do something about that because it was only a stopgap measure all along. Uh, the Jets did, you know, under the circumstances uh, a reasonable job of competing at different stages of the season and, uh, you know, Craig Dean is to be a porter for that. So if he's making that decision on his own right, then uh, I think he deserves a pat on the back for uh, for making the best of a bad lot um, under the circumstances. All right, well, that's eight league. Um, that's the end of our first hour of this show. We are going to focus on Europe in the next hour of the show. We're going to talk to Richard Bayless from Optus Spots with the Euros just around the corner. We're going to wrap up the Champions League and the Europa uh, League as well, and we are going to wrap it up with stoppage time with a conversation that um, we're all very interested in, the press conference in sport does it need to exist in the current format all right stick around it's after the news on box to box now this is box to box with rob gilbus and michael edgley oh what a goal for chemist warehouse home of real brands and real savings and storage king the kings of storage moving absolutely fantastic Yes, welcome back to Box to Box. A big second hour coming up very soon. Well, in fact, it's coming up right now. Second edition news with Willem van Dender, and shortly he's going to go through all of the uh, comings and goings of the Socceroos and the Matildas in what is a very, very busy period of time. We're going to talk to Opt Sports Richard Bayless. The Euros are just a week away, and Richard is going to be watching every single moment of it. We'll be watching it with him. He's going to break down the entire tournament for us and pick some winners as well. We're going to talk more Europe with Dino and Del. Reflect on the Champions League and the Europa, as well as a bit more on on the, the uh, Euros as they come up and we'll wrap it up with stoppage time uh, Willem we've got a massive Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army Rob and we've got a massive few years coming up for our national teams there'll be World Cups Asian Cups a home World Cup of course take the first step this week and sign up to the Green and Gold Army mailing list at ggatravel.com.au Michael Tony Gustafsson this week has named a 25 player squad for the Matildas upcoming friendlies against Denmark and Sweden and the bigger mission of course is Lisa Devanna. Recalled are Steph Catley and Elise Callan-Knight while Kyra Cooney-Cross, Charlotte Grant, Courtney Nevitt and Tegan Micah enter the camp uncapped. At the other end of the caps list is Emily Van Egmont. She's played uh, 99 to this stage so will hopefully become the 8th Matilda to bring up the ton in this camp. They are going to meet in Barstad in Sweden this Saturday and the first game is on June 11. Yeah, exciting time for uh, Kyra Cooney-Cross, Courtney Nevin and Charlotte Grant in particular, um, who have really uh, won their selection off the back of uh, fantastic W League seasons. Uh, Courtney Nevin was a bit of a bolter. That one was a bit of a surprise. But obviously the huge news, no Lisa Devanna, no Jenna McCormick, no Emma Checker. Okay, so they're sending a, a message about the future of um, of the Matildas. Obviously, Lisa Devanna, she is the Tim Cahill of Australian women's football. Um, it is been a bit of a sore point about the way she's been treated uh, over the years. Uh, my information is behind the scenes that Tony Gustafsson did a good job of explaining the reasons why and giving her motivation to continue to go and uh, be in the hunt for um, the uh, the World Cup. So um, great to see Steph Catley back. Uh, Elise Keller-Knight um, and... Uh, 
Kai Simon uh, in particular. Those two players have played very little football, um, both coming off long-term injuries and surgery. Whether they actually make it through to the Olympics, um, there's a bit of a doubt on that. And Ali Carpenter and Tamika Yellop return. They're the big frontliners that will go into this team. And we're looking forward to seeing who will make that big Olympic squad. That's what this camp's all about in these two friendlies. I'd be lying, though, if I didn't say I was disappointed that Lucy Devanna couldn't um, get herself into that squad. Um, she's uh, so talismanic, if that's a word, for uh, the Matildas and has been for so many years. Um, uh, I felt that she deserved a, a farewell. Um, she seemed to have been playing uh, in, in good enough form. She was doing the job with Melbourne Victory. where I won the grand final, obviously, and she played a big part in that. I know you've talked about her role and, you know, she doesn't have the full package anymore, but she still has um, the strike power and, um, and that character that, um, that is so important. But uh, obviously she's not going to go. Yeah, look, I think he can only take 16 outfielders to the Olympic Games, so I think he's got to have players that can play in multiple positions and also back up um, with short turnarounds after games, and I think that's what's ruled Lisa out. This is not about a farewell for Lisa. My information is that uh, he's told, uh, Gustafsson's told Lisa that she's very much in the frame for the World Cup because it's a different scenario, that tournament, and uh, ultimately for Lisa, it was the fact that um, she's probably restricted in her ability to recover and, Mm. uh, and play in quick succession and also not play full 90 minutes and that's um, I think I think he has to go with players that potentially uh, can play in two or three positions based on injuries in this in this tournament well, that's good and, news. and that's probably what's ruled out Lisa not a lot of men's action around club, club land because a lot of the Socceroos are in camp but what was played was brilliant as mentioned uh, with Cozzy Kenny Dougal has etched his name into Blackpool legend scoring both goals in their League One promotion playoff against Lincoln City he netted both goals from outside of the box one with either foot if you don't mind and we'll now get a second crack at the championship having played 12 games for Barnsley at the level in 2019-20. And Nikita Rukovica scored his 23rd of the season for Maccabi Haifa in their 3-2 win over Hapoel Beersheba on the final day of the Israeli season. That win saw Haifa lift their first championship in a decade, while Rukovica sealed back-to-back golden boots in the process. And to finish, the Oliroos have gone down 2-1 to Ireland in the first of four pre-Olympic friendlies being played in Mabea. Having been the better side in the first half, in my opinion, they then conceded early in the second. Rami Nazarene restored parity with a fantastic goal from outside the box but a bit of tired possibly a little bit slack defending uh, at the end of the match will the Irish go up the other end and net the winner uh, the Oli Roos will face Saudi Arabia on Saturday night 10pm uh, Eastern check your local guides on that one going back to the championship playoffs guys Brentford are going to play in English football's top flight for the first time since 1947 they disposed of Swansea 2-0 on Saturday. The Bees had previously lost playoff finals in 97, 2002, 2013 and last year 2020, but looked pretty assured from the outset against the Swans, who finished with 10 men. Further down the chain, Blackpool moved into the championship with a win over Lincoln and Morecambe beat Newcombe County, uh, Newport County, 1-0 to climb into League One. Brentford looked very good. They looked very comfortable. Swansea, they just seemed like a team that wanted to kick Brentford off the park and uh, and it felt like that they uh, they were their own worst enemies in, in that game. If they had have uh, played uh, on, on their own merits, I, I, I seriously think they would have uh, uh, done a lot better than uh, than th- that aggressive style that, um, that, that they went out there with clearly as a game plan to intimidate Brentford. 
Yeah, I agree, Robin. It was you know they say that two 0 is the most dangerous scoreline mm. to be up, but they even from two goals down, Swansea. There was never a feeling that Brentford didn't have the game in their grasp. There was a player sent off, and from that point, they really just streeted it in for the last mm. thirty or forty minutes. It was party time. There was really no pressure poured on the beast. I don't think. And a great club and a great brand mm. to uh, be exposed to the world through the Premier League next year. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, it is going. A little bit of squad news ahead of the Euros before we chat to Richard Bayless. England have defeated Austria 1-0 through Bakary Sacco's maiden international goal uh, in the pre-Euros friendlies. But it has come at a cost, Rob. Trent Alexander-Arnold has injured his thigh, another uh, medical area that they seem to have different terminology for in the UK. I would have called it his quad. Anyway, he was selected as one of four right-backs in their 26-man squad, but he can be replaced right up until tournament kickoff. Elsewhere, tournament favourites France turned up, uh, tuned up with a 3-0 win over Wales. Goals come through Mbappe, Griezmann and Dembele while Scotland led twice but ultimately drew with the Netherlands to all. Rob it's been a, a saga in the tabloids of the UK. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold's non-inclusion in the uh, in the previous international window. He's now been back in ahead of the Euros. Now he's going to miss altogether. A bit of a shame. Yeah, it, I don't know that he's definitely out just yet um, but um, it, it is uh, a saga as you say. I heard Gareth Southgate uh, talking on the BBC and uh, you know he's, he, Gareth doesn't seem to get angry very often but he was he was pretty frustrated uh, around some of the articles and he made it clear that he'd actually called Trent Alexander-Arnold four weeks ago and told him to just ignore whatever was written in the press because he was going to be selected. My biggest concern and I know that we'll talk about this um, later in the hour is uh, just picking injured players Jordan Henderson, Harry Maguire, um, uh, obviously, the squad is with. Uh, there are twenty six players, but uh, uh, you know, I, I just felt that um, you know someone in the kind of form that Jesse Lingard was in uh, uh, warranted a spot. Um, from uh, all accounts, uh, listening to the pundits, he uh, brings an incredible character and uh, and um, joy to to a camp, and um, and he's the sort of player that the young guys really thrive off and feed. So, as we've seen so many times in tournaments around the world. There's always an injury to a player in the squad, and uh, and there always seems to be someone who, who drops out, and that someone comes in and um, and and becomes a, an important player in, in the team. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see one of those players, James Ward Prowse, another that um, that might get picked. Um, and uh, you know, if Arnold doesn't uh, get to play, one of them will uh, play a big role in the tournament for England. Over to Belgium, Kevin De Bruyne has avoided surgery on the facial injury he sustained in the Champions League final and remains a chance to feature for them at the Euros, probably in the in the knockout stages if they make it that far. He suffered an acute nose fracture and left orbital fracture in his collision with Antonio Rudiger, with Roberto Martinez revealing he was unlike oh he wasn't going to join Belgium squad until later on in their preparation anyway. And Michael they're going to need him. He's now 29. Lukaku is 28. Hazard is 30. This is, of all the clubs, or all the nations in Europe, this is a genuine golden generation for Belgium at the moment. They went close at the World Cup. Uh, I think the next World Cup's going to be beyond them. So this is, to borrow from some Aussies sporting parlance, they're in the window and it is closing, so they need to win now. Yeah, I remember the question we asked Martin Tyler, who's pretty much said the same thing, Willem, that uh, this is Belgium's chance to win something. Uh, and, and I think it'll be a... Um, a negative reflection on Belgian football if they don't win something out of this generation. Mm, yeah, well, I guess we've seen so many golden generations over the history of, of football, haven't we? Obviously, the Dutch um, and uh, Hungary way back when, when for Pushkas uh, was in his pomp. Uh, they, uh, don't, the fairy tale always doesn't uh, doesn't always uh, come about, does it? Anyway, um, we will find out because the Euros are not far away. And a man we're going to talk about the Euros with is Richard Bayless. He's from Optus Sports. Uh, it's going to be a massive six weeks of football, which is going to watch every minute of it. And we're going to talk to him after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? 
for a chemist warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most... Yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sport Broadcasting across Australia. Well, we've been waiting five years now for the Euros uh, since Portugal won back uh, all those years ago in France and uh, the tournament is now upon us. It is going to occur. It is going to occur across many countries in Europe and the man who's going to host the Australian coverage for Optus Sports is Richard Bayless and we welcome him back to the show. How are you, Richard? I'm very well, thanks, Rob. How are you? Yeah, mate, we're really good and um, and excited. I mean, any football fan worth their, uh, their uh, credentials uh, just loves these big tournaments when they come around and uh, there's just something... The, we love the World Cup, but there's something special about the Euros, just the, the pure quality that the tournament has from start to finish at, at every end. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, insofar as the broadcast, before we get into the, the groups and uh, and the logistics of the whole tournament, um, uh, we're all uh, subscribers to Optus, obviously. But just talk to us a little bit about how the, the coverage is going to play out across Optus. And, and you do seem to have down pat just that, uh, that spoiler alert scenario so people can watch as many games as they like without worrying about finding out the scores. Our coverage model is pretty uh, ambitious. It's extensive. It was actually going to be much more ambitious before COVID hit us, but I'm pretty confident we've got a, you know, a really cool, um, you know, setup of shows and coverage and shows that, uh, you know, support the live coverage as well. I think, you know, we're going to offer a lot, a lot more access than than we've ever had before, both in terms of that stadiums, but also we've got studios in both Sydney and also in London as well. So we'll have coverage in a couple of different time zones, which is nice because, like you say, a lot of people probably will wake up that little bit later and want to watch it how they want on demand or through the mega matches or mini matches or whatever it might be. So, you know, obviously we'll have that spoiler alert protection as always within uh, the app and our social media channels will be pumping too. So we've got, you know, a warm-up show at 9 p.m. Eastern every night hosted by Mel McLaughlin and Claude Saviano, which will be a nice way of getting everyone in the mood. We'll go live to all our reporters and pundits uh, around Europe, of which we'll have them stationed in several different countries. And then with the match coverage hosted by myself or, or Neve Owens, we go from 10.30pm at night, Eastern time, through till effectively 8.30 in the morning. It's a long old stint, but awesome. it'll be worth it because, like you say, the quality of matches will keep us going. And then in the morning, we'll have a, a breakfast show hosted by Jules Breach with Mark Schwarzer and some great guests like uh, Neil Heskey and Sean Wright Phillips and Louis Bowamorte. Those guys will be live from London in a studio overlooking the Thames. So, you know, when people wake up breakfast time, want to find out in Australia what happened, they'll have the perfect companion in those guys. So that plus, we've got a TikTok live show. We've got a lot of social executions we're lining up. We feel like it's the most ambitious coverage of a tournament we've ever had. And with the Copper America happening at the same time and up the sport, we reckon we might be pretty busy. Richard, as a fan of the sport like we all are, are you nervous that at some point a COVID outbreak might um, might de- de- uh, decouple a, uh, one of the favourites or have a big impact in the event. What What do you think? Uh, do you think we'll get through the event without COVID having some sort of impact or do you think it will at some point? I think it would be a surprise if we got through it without any type of you know, hiccup, be that big or slightly slightly smaller, I suppose, in terms of a, a squad or you know, a venue. Um, but... You know, we've had so many different uh, conversations with UEFA over a 16-month journey now. And, you know, also there's been so much football happening across the continent, both at a club level, but also in, you know, UEFA competitions like Europa League and Champions League, that they've got their protocols so down pat that they're, they're pretty confident. And I think by extension, we have to be confident as broadcasters and fans that they will 
sort that out. I mean, whether or not we get through without any players testing positive, I'm not sure. And also considering that, you know, crowds will be back in all venues because that was part of the stipulation in getting, you know, these venues locked in was the ability to have 25% crowds. We lost, unfortunately, Dublin because they could not commit to that. But everywhere else has kind of got those protocols to a point where they're confident you know, so many vaccines in the UK in particular have been rolled out and we know that the Indian strain is there, but there's almost this sort of sense of no turning back now. You know, this is almost the coming out party uh, post-COVID for the UK and, of course, the big games are at Wembley. So, you know, I guess long answer to the question, I, I hope not, but I think, you know, we need to accept that with the world we're in at the moment, it's probably a matter of just making sure that, you know, people are looked after and if something does happen, there's uh, you know, protocols in place to be able to reduce the impact. Richard, um, the uh, the groups, there's six groups in total, um, full teams in each group. Uh, uh, there's there's heaps of chances for, for various teams to qualify. There's uh, there's a, a couple of groups of death in there. Just, just talk us through the groups and, and who you're expecting to, to advance um, and, you know, any dark horses there. I like uh, my friends Lati Angelovsky, who is a proud North Macedonian, uh, fancies them in their group. Uh, yeah, give us your thoughts on all that fine. The best thing, and you touched on it before, Rob, the fact that it's so competitive with the Euros. I mean, there's probably only two or three nations max that you would look at and say, oh, they are minnows. You know, a lot of them have been heavyweights in their own right. And also the other element that comes in is that four of the best six third-place teams will qualify for the knockout stage. So it's one of those things where almost everyone gets a prize. And I remember four or five years ago, Portugal won it having finished third in their group. So you know, there are a couple of ways out of jail if you have an ordinary group stage. But going through them, you know, Group A is an opportunity for all four nations because we've got Turkey, Italy, Wales and Switzerland. It starts with Italy, Turkey uh, next Saturday morning. And Italy, while they'll go in as favourites and they do have obviously some of the star players in that group, they aren't as strong, certainly on paper, as they may have been in years gone past. So I think there's an opportunity there for a Turkey, for instance, who would consider themselves a good chance of going through. So too Wales, of course, if Gareth Bale can star in the, in the tournament, as we've seen before. Group B, actually, to me, is one of great opportunity because Belgium will be the big favourites in this, even if Kevin De Bruyne is not fit for the group stages. You know, they will go through, you would think, and they'll be amongst the favourites. But beyond that, you've got Denmark, Finland and Russia. I actually think Denmark could be one of the underdogs or the outsiders, dark horses, if you like, of the whole tournament because they've got phenomenal players, particularly through the spine, with uh, Hoiberg and also Ericsson, as we know, has been there and done it. I think you know, they could be one to keep an eye out for. Group C, you would expect Netherlands to go through with Ukraine, Austria and North Macedonia in that group, but it's pretty open otherwise. Ukraine, arguably one of the more impressive sides sort of under the radar the last few years, so they could be one to, to keep an eye out for. And they have a host venue as well, which is big for them. Group D, probably Australian-wise, in terms of our viewership out here, will be the one that most people keep an eye on because, of course, any time England are involved, particularly with so many games at Wembley and one against Scotland, you can rest assured that so many people will be waking up to watch the Three Lions, maybe ending that 55-year drought in terms of a major tournament. But with Croatia, Czech Republic, and to a lesser extent, Scotland, it won't all be plain sailing and there'll be a lot of pressure on Gareth Southgate. There's no doubt about that. But they will go through to the knockout stages at the very least. Then you've got some of the big dogs, Spain in Group E. They'll go through. Whether Sweden, Poland or Slovakia go through, you'd have to think without Ibrahimovic, Sweden probably not a factor in the tournament as a whole. Poland, Lewandowski more likely to go through. And Group F, you know, save the best for last. It's undoubtedly the group of the tournament because 
alongside poor old Hungary, you've got Portugal, the reigning champions, France, the world champions, and Germany, who we know are a massive powerhouse. They've gone through a bit of a tough period, but they'll say goodbye to their manager, Yogi Love, after this tournament. Never count them out. So, you know, amongst, what, 24 nations? I've probably named all 24 of them, and I reckon that possibly... You know, 20 to 22 of them have got a really good claim to going through to the knockouts and seven or eight of them can probably win it. There are some amazing rivalries in the group stages. I mean, obviously, we've got England and Scotland, England and Croatia. You've got uh, France and Germany. And in Group B, you've got Russia and Finland. You know, they've, they've nearly been to war about uh, 15 times over the last 60 years. So there is plenty to look forward to. W- what is the the game of the group stage that you're most looking forward to, Richard? You're 100% right in that there are so many of them. I think the one given the fixturing and when it's on, I think England against Croatia will be the one. Yeah, that's the one, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one. Or France and Germany, yeah. I think the best thing about England and Croatia is the time it's on. You know, sort of Australian time, Eastern Seaboard time, it's on at uh, 11 p.m., two days into the tournament on a Sunday night. There'll be plenty of people out at at bars and and getting amongst it out here. Hopefully, by the way, uh, you know, in Melbourne, there'll be the opportunity for people to go out and enjoy it. Uh, with their friends and family. Um, I know it'll be the case everywhere else, but uh, considering they played in a World Cup semi-final only three years ago, Croatia arguably aren't as strong as they were then, but you look at their squad on paper, they can absolutely uh, cause an upset here against an England team that possibly, once again, will go into a tournament overhype. You know, you look at their squad, it's phenomenal. There's no reason why uh, they shouldn't compete, but there seems to be that sort of thing with the England side at major tournaments where the expectation doesn't always match the reality. So, you know, from their perspective, it'd be great to see them go all the way through to a, a semi-final or a final at Wembley because the whole place would just light up. We're a long time on from the 2010 and 14 era when they made a World Cup final and the World Cup semis as well. But the generation coming through is quite refreshing, as we know, De Jong, De Ligt, Donny van der Beek. My question to you is, are those three ready to, to put a proper stamp on an international tournament? And uh, is the team around them good enough? Or is this perhaps a, a tournament too early for the Dutch? Well, one thing, Will, and when I looked at their squad, I sort of forgot about a lot of their fringe players, if you like, and how strong they are. I mean, they don't have really many weak links. I mean, possibly the fact that Frank Burr is their manager might be the weak link because under Ronald Koeman, they were sort of starting to build again. Then he went to the Barcelona gig. So whether or not they can continue the momentum they started to build, I'm not too sure. You think in De Ligt and Frankie de Jong, they absolutely have the players to be able to compete at that level. Van der Beek, though, hasn't played the minutes. Um, you know, Depay doesn't know where his future is. Luke de Jong is getting a little bit older. Uh, Quincy Promes is a great player. They have great players, there's no doubt about it. Whether or not they're amongst that sort of six or seven to win it, I think they might be just outside that. But then again, their group is one that, they have to get through. They have to top that group, um, undoubtedly. So if they do that, they put themselves in a good position, then you're only a couple of games away from a Euro, a Euro final. So let's not write them out. I know I've sort of said yes or no in the same answer. I want to give you as much hope as possible. He only Maybe listened to the going. positives of what you said, Richard. Don't worry. <laughs> exactly. I'm watching his face. Maybe just going as outsiders and you can take <laughs> that in and say no one expects much of us and we can, we can prove them wrong. But by the way, you've got a couple of fantastic midfielders that a lot of people maybe haven't seen or heard of in Ryan Gravenberch and also Tian Koopminers, who's a great player too for Arsene Alkmaar. So you've got the players. Can you put it together? That's a big question. Hey, uh, Richard, thanks for joining us, mate. We really can't wait for the tournament to start. Um, we love the coverage of Optus uh, and uh, we're all big fans uh, and, uh, and and watch it uh, every, every week. Uh, we will be watching a heap of it uh, over the course of the next five or so weeks, six weeks even, uh, once the tournament kicks off. So, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, mate. We'll have to get you back on during it uh, to, to see how it's playing out. 
Sounds good, guys. Make sure you get your sleep patterns in order now because it'll be a long month. That's right, I'm trying to start I, was, I was just thinking through your sleep patterns, Richard. <laughs> no, spoiler alert. Uh, the the, shop, the trick is make sure you turn your phone off, put it down, turn the silence on, don't look at it when you wake up <laughs> and uh, and uh, and just be careful about how you open it up because you just don't want to get uh, a result that somebody like Edgley has told me uh, so many times. Uh, it's so much fun, Richard, when you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> okay, Richard. The sports, Richard Bayless. All right, stick around. We're going to talk more Europe. Dino and Della are going to get on the line next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sport. It's been a fun show so far. We've talked to Oliver Kay from The Athletic about Ange Postacoglu, Johnny Cosmina, our first ever guest. He came back. We're talking Socceroos. We were talking Socceroos with him. And, of course, Richard Bayless from Optus Sports. But we've got Dino and Dell on the line. We're going to talk more or reflect on last weekend's action and uh, and look ahead to the, the final friendlies, etc. Some of the friendly results have already come through. But before we do, our friends at Storage King have got a massive offer on in June all right now. If you move in before June 30, you will receive $100 worth of boxes and packing materials free. Conditions apply. If you need to move, you need boxes, you need packing materials, and you need Storage King. You've got to jump onto storageking.com.au to find your nearest store. You will get $100 worth of boxes and packing materials to help with your move. They've got a crack team of storage professionals. They'll help find the right space for your storage soon. And your storage with Storage King, the kings of storage, moving, and more. Oh, we've got a bit of a reprise there. Thank you, Tamo. All right, Tamo, boys, um, we're going to talk... Uh, uh, more Europe. Uh, lots of football to talk about. Let's start with the Champions League final. And of course, I think uh, Thomas Tuchel must uh, listen to our show because we gave him some good advice on how to scupper Pep and it did. And I think, I think Rob, if I'm not mistaken, I think we may have done okay in the prediction stakes. Yeah, I think a couple of us did. Um, uh, we're just going to have a, a listen uh, to uh, last week's, or at least one of last week's tips. And what about you, uh, Rob? Uh, you're, you're an underdog man. And Chelsea are hardly an underdog with the way that they are, but can you see can you see it being the Werner final? I can, and I am going to tip the underdog uh, to win. Um, I think that um, there's no more pressure on Chelsea now. I know you and I are talking about it during the week. I thought that if, if they had to play for a Champions League position, and we talked about the doomsday scenario a couple of weeks ago, which should have played out if Leicester City hadn't have just uh, you know choked at the, the death, uh, uh, then I wouldn't have been prepared to tip them. But now the pressure's off. They know they've won. Thomas Tuchel is a, a master strategist, and I think he'd get some free rent in Pep Guardiola his head and uh, he'd be extra worried about him because uh, he's done it before already this season and uh, um, look they've got the firepower if um, if Tuchel can get it uh, together and uh, look I think the key is um, if N'Golo Kante is fit he, he plays the role of two three players and uh, you know for me he's the difference. Edge is it going to be the perfect swan song for Sergio Aguero? It is yeah they, they, have, um, they have too much quality in my book and uh, they'll get the job done and uh, I think it'll be a lot more comfortable than what Rob was explaining. Do you have anything to say? Congratulations. What I have to say is... (laughs) Oh, he moves along. What I have to say is um, this show's not about you, Rob. The show's about Chelsea. I'm just just going to take the occasional victory where I get them, and if you don't blow your own trumpet, nobody else will. That's right. So, Michael, just please remember But you're right. Thomas Tuchel is one of the best coaches in the world, and he's taken Chelsea to their second Champions League trophy in just... In just four months, it's a pretty amazing effort, Derek. I've got a question for Derek. How English is English football? This Champions League final, England fans might have been gloating about the All England final, and uh, 
And I noticed some of their fans misbehaved a little bit in Portugal too, but only nine players who started were English, four at, Man- uh, at uh, Manchester City and five at Chelsea. Both uh, clubs' owners are non-English and the coaches, non-English. So just how English is English football, Derek? Well, it was a very English final because, as we know, every time English teams play each other in this final, it's a rubbish game. And to be fair, <laughs> it, 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 wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't stellar. There was some tension there at the end, but it wasn't stellar. Um, yeah, look, uh, not many English uh, players on the pitch. And to be fair, Manchester City have been cultivating a few, though. We'll look forward to seeing Ben Foden. Uh, sorry, um, Phil uh, Foden. Foden. Yeah, Phil Foden and uh, um, Raheem Sterling lining up for England uh, in, in a few days from now. But, you know, f- good point well made. Um, you know, it had a continental flavour with, uh, with with the two continental managers and two very different styles. But it wasn't the Werner final, was it, Dino? Was it Dino? It was more the Kante final. Yeah, Kante was uh, superb. I mean, uh, every blade of grass. And, and, and look, you expected that. Um, and, that. and for me, he was man of the match. But I thought uh, Havertz did well, and even Werner. And uh, I think overall, Chelsea uh, definitely deserved to win the game. Dino, you've lived in America, so you'll appreciate this. Just a little bit of a side note about the Champions League is that CBS, the uh, the new partners for the A-League in Australian football, they uh, took the... Um, the, the match uh, on their primary feed-away channel in the US on the eastern uh, states. It was uh, the match kicked off at three o'clock, and they had a programming from twelve thirty p.m. until five thirty p.m. Pretty impressive uh, on their feed-away national television network. They uh, they had five hours of uh, of football in America. That's uh, uh, that's never been done before in the states. So it it just proves uh, maybe CBS is going to be good for Australian football. I have lived in America. And in the days then, it was very hard to get a lot of games that you could watch, you know. And you know, the, they did actually still pan to the English, but it was more like a like a just a, a few chosen games that they would look at. But now, I think with all the new platforms, I think it's uh, I think they really love the British type of game and and especially the major tournaments. So I think uh, from an American point of view, I think it'll still go very very well as it did uh, even when I was there. It, of course, wasn't the dream final for Sergio Aguero in the end, Dino. He bowed out with the loss there, but he now joins Barcelona on a two-year deal. He um, says the Barcelona are the biggest and best club in the world, so he seems to have moved on quite quickly. Is that a good move for Barca? Yeah, look, I think so. I mean, you can still see, like, even in the games when he was playing just at the back end of the season where, you know, he could still finish... And and look, he'll be used most probably, you know, and, and looked after in regards to not playing every single minute of every game. But look, he's still a, a great predator and I think he'll do really well in Spain because I think it will be a little bit easier than it is, that, than it is in uh, England. I think that's just where Barcelona is, to be honest with you, uh, Dino. I don't think they're in a position to spend 100 million uh, you know, euros on a striker. And if you can get someone of Aguero's... Um, you know, quality for free. I think that's what you've got to do. Before we move on to Euro 2020, there's been quite a bit of managerial activity uh, around England and Europe in particular. Of course, Nuno's gone from Wolves and that's, uh, you know, they've already replaced him with another Portuguese um, who I don't think anyone in the studio would have heard of before. Um, And the big one, you know, Zidane leaving um, Real Madrid and then Carlo Ancelotti leaving Everton to go to 
Real Madrid. First of all, Dino, how are Everton going to be feeling about that? It's poor form, really, because if you think about it, he when he went there, he, he especially when he was paraded, like with the new stadium they're going to build and he's going to be here and see it all through. And I think it was about a five or six year contract. Um, but realistically, it doesn't. It's not worth the paper it's written on, is it? You know, he's just gone away. Um, they finished in a poor position, really. Um, and and for me, you know, well, let's see how he goes uh, on his next adventure and see how he goes. But I mean, I I just think it's really poor form on his behalf. And uh, I hope Everton do get a decent manager. Not the most impressive Ever- Everton season, you know. Tenth is really poor, you know, for for them given the level of investment and the aspirations of the club. But they're talking about David Moyes possibly returning. I know for for um. Farid, uh, the um, owner, didn't want him the last time, but he's now proven himself. Nuno, the ex-Wolves manager, and possibly even Rafa Benitez, who... I heard Stephen Gerrard's you know, name mentioned this afternoon. Stephen Gerrard, yeah. But Benitez still lives on on, on uh, Merseyside, and, and, and Carragher thinks he could do a job there. And yeah, possibly. Gerrard is Gerard's going to be linked with every major English job, to be honest with you now, because he's got that... What a story you know, that be, though. That, that track record would he would he go to Everton that's a that's a tough one I think Carragher would because he was a he was an Everton fan but he played for Liverpool but we all know Gerard is a red through and through um but then Zidane leaving as well do, do you think Zidane can go anywhere do you know he just seemed to have that right set up he had all that success at Real Madrid but can you see another club um going and taking a chance on him yeah look I mean I have mixed feelings, obviously, the way he treated uh, Gareth Bale. And I know Gareth most probably had a lot to do with part of, of that. But if you look at his, his record when Gareth was there, he, you know, and, and even then he wouldn't play him even when he'd won like three Champions Leagues in a row. Um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a really big fan of him, to be, fun, to be honest. So I'm not really bothered wherever he goes as long as, long as he doesn't come to Derby. That's all I'm talking about. <laughs> Oh, I don't know if a beggars can be choosers, to be honest with you, Dino. But um, next big question is, how many how many right-backs is too many right-backs? And I'm talking here about the England squad. They've only got three now because of Trent's injury. But what did you think of that squad overall? Yeah, look, I, again, I think... And I've, I've been listening to it for the whole of the week, really. It's, it's all about trying to get a balance... You know, in in your squad, and and the, and the thing is, and I do I do get it. Like Trent, I still think Trent eventually will be a midfielder, um, and playing maybe even in the middle of the park and uh, creating. Um, but at the moment, yeah, how many do you have? I mean, it's ridiculous to have five five uh, right backs in the squad, and I know a couple have dropped out now through being dropped out and also injured. So, yeah, look. I can't really understand it, um, and, and I just don't think the actual full squad is really that balanced. I think there's some areas where I think they've missed a few tricks, and you know, even with you know, in regards to set pieces now, you know, who's going to take them apart from, let's say, um, you, you've really got <clears throat> only for me. Uh, I'm trying to look here. James Ward-Prowse would be someone I would look at to, to come in if there is any more injuries because he, he's, he can deliver uh, and he's a great set piece. And and if you really take anybody out of there, like, there's no one really else you can actually put in there that can actually do it now. So, and I think it's, I think the key to the whole thing for the England 
um, for me is the, the midfield and Declan Rice and his role in there with uh, Mount, Bellingham and uh, one or two others. Harry Kane's going to be obviously key as well. So, I mean, that goes without saying. Yeah, of course. And uh, a win over Austria. And uh, it should be said that an Arsenal player did score that goal. Bianca uh, Saka scored and he, he looks good. Don't know if he'll start, but he's given uh, Gareth Southgate something to think about off the bench. Scotland with a very credible 2-2 draw in Netherlands, but Memphis Depay with an amazing late strike. And how far has he come since he was kind of toiling at Manchester United? And of course, uh, Wales, unfortunately, Dino sunk by a, a very powered up, you know, um, French team with, you know, Griezmann and Mbappe and Mbele on the score sheet. Probably not one that, that you'll you'll lose too much sleep over. But um, Rob, it's getting pretty close now. And even I'm getting a bit excited about the tournament. Oh, excellent, mate. We're all getting very excited. Well done, Derek. Well done, Dino. All right, stick around. We're going to wrap up this show with a bit of stoppage time action after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of Yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sport. has been a busy show as it always is. Fourth official's given us nine minutes and we're going to talk about whether football players should uh, be uh, compelled to... Uh, to give um, interviews uh, at um, various stages of matches, before, after. We see it during these days um, in the wake of the Naomi Osaka um, uh, walkout of the French Open. So where do you want to start this, Derek? It's caused a very broad discussion uh, a lot of people coming out in Osaka's um, defence and being very sympathetic, not just on the issue of, of mental health um, and how players should be or competitors should be treated, but also just the role of um, of of this um, in the, these these kinds of interviews in sport in general. I mean, we get bombarded with them every day, every day and every week, whether it be press conferences or pre-match interviews, which generally are just in football are just normally terrible. Um, over over here, we have mid-match interviews, which Australia's actually, I think, innovated in AFL and cricket with the spider cam. And then, you know, the role of the post-match interview. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, whether players, when they're under pressure like that, should be compelled to front up the media at times live television, particularly when they've just lost, um, or whether it's still a staple of our game. So, I mean, Ed, you're a man with a strong opinion on things. Do you think we should be looking after our players more and 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 uh, cutting their media responsibilities? No, not at all. I think um, uh, there's a couple of points to make. The first point is the players are the major benefactor of any increase in broadcast rights. It always finds their way into their pockets in a significant way. The more money in the game, the more money for players. So ultimately, um, you know, fans deserve the opportunity to um, have a window into their world and uh, work out what makes them tick and how they respond to pressure and so forth. Um, so I, I think we should be encouraging more and more access and the good broadcasters and the good clubs will make that content Compelling, and uh, the ones that aren't, uh, it's no good. But uh, in terms of Naomi Osaka, you know, I do feel for. I think tennis is a different story because it's brutal. I mean, you can lose a massive um, Grand Slam 
uh, match and um, and then you know 30 seconds after you lost you're, you're getting asked questions very different with uh, team sports like football where you've got media managers and so forth helping you manage uh, what you're going to say and deal with it um, yeah so my, my heart goes out to Naomi Osaka and I think tennis needs to probably think through that in a bit more detail how they do it it was more a matter though or as much a matter of, as the way that it, that her camp managed it announcing it when the tournament started yeah that was, and, pretty, uh, that was so you know if they were going to do it it, it it should have been managed a lot better yeah. But I, I think, does anyone, does the name Marshawn Lynch ring a bell with anybody? Um, he was famously, do you know Willem? Yeah, the, yeah, you've quoted him before, I think. Yeah, yeah I have. He, he, was the, he was the Seattle Seahawks player, um, who, a nickname Beast Mode, who uh, in the 2015 lead up to the Super Bowl, uh, he didn't want to turn up to media day. So he sat at the press conference and just repeated, well, the same answer to every question. I'm just here so I won't get fined. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have seen Naomi have a crack at that. Yeah, that would have been pretty good, wouldn't it? I think the key difference, though, between the Naomi Osaka situation and football is that football is a team sport so if you have a player who's feeling a bit down or doesn't them. particularly want to speak you can hide whereas yeah. you know just I think yeah, the most sort of right. prominent voice in the A-League Scott Jamison loves it like mm. you try to take away his ability to speak to the media uh, he, he'd crack it so yeah I think you can hide there whereas with tennis unfortunately in the current setup it's not the case honestly has anyone ever enjoyed a pre-match interview? I mean, all they, literally all they do is praise the other, the other team and the other manager. Of course, at the end, they, they're slagging off the other team and the other manager. And that, that's the more interesting stuff. But that pre-match interview is just appalling. And I don't think any of us should be subjected to anything like that going forward. Um, we have seen some innovation, though, um, Rob, um, uh, in, in cricket, haven't we? Because they've had to do this diary room thing. And actually, the players quite like it because they, 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 they don't feel like it's more intimate um, scenario for the, for, the, for the players. So do you think we could bring in the old diary room for something like this? Yeah, look, I, I don't mind innovation. Um, I, I, I'm dead set against uh, live interviews during um, matches. I hate what the AFL do talking to uh, coaches and players as they walk off the ground. I know they're not the only sport that does it uh, because, um, you know, the uh, the broadcasters demand more and more content. Um, I, I like your pre-match interviews, uh, but I can't stand those. Dino, some of the most iconic moments have come from post-match interviews. I mean, the obvious example is Kevin Keegan, in uh, 1996 and you know that I mean that that was TV gold even though it was car crash television and you know maybe Kevin on reflection probably wishes that microphone wasn't put in front of his mouth yeah look uh, we all remember that that was a, a very fan and it was a fabulous game of course um, you know between Liverpool and uh, Newcastle um, but yeah Kevin uh, yeah look I, I felt for him that that day uh, but to be fair to him he, he was he was pretty well on the front foot and uh, and I don't think he left anything out of it so uh, I think uh, it certainly got it off his chest but I, I, I'm most probably I mean like we're, we're in media aren't we we're, we're talking now on on a radio show so we, we have to talk and understand it but sometimes I think especially for the individual sports uh, women and men um, sometimes they are shy and that's where they do need a, a good manager you know and a media manager to be able to break through that you know nervousness possibly you know you know and and, and, and be confident about what you're going to speak about and, and 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 hopefully not get set up too much to be answering questions they don't really know how to answer so I'm, I'm a bit on the fence with it with sometimes because I think you know it's not always easy but um, look we do we do it for a living 
and, and we communicate in our workplace most of the day as well. So we're most probably more more experienced nowadays than we would have been in the in the early say seventies and eighties. But Derek, um, don't we? We love the post-match Premier League uh, interviews because they happen sort of three or four minutes after the final whistle, don't they? They they get them just as they're sort of going back into the room. So it is. Uh, we've seen some great ones where coaches have taken on uh, the the, the journo asking the question if they're saying, "Well, what game are you watching?" I remember Roy Hodgson took someone apart. Willem, do you remember the Roy Hodgson? I was going to famously throw up the Roy Hodgson one. Let's not piss about. Let's not piss about. I think it was. Was yeah, it Derek? Yeah, that was. And he re- he's like, "Let's start again. Let's let's rerun this press conference." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and of course, our friend Jose Mourinho um, was an absolute classic and some of the looks and scowls that he gave um, the contempt that he found some of those questions he was asked after the game. And of course, he was chucking his team under the bus uh, towards the end of his Tottenham tenure in those interviews. But I do not speak. Mean- if I speak, I am in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly it. And of course, um, the, gra- the grand master of all this, just to wrap up, was Sir Alex Ferguson. I mean, he, he used these, this was part of the war, you know, it wasn't just what happened on the pitch. It was strategically talking to um, the press afterwards and just getting little digs in and little jibes in. And he wanted to get in the head of the referee for the following week or, you know, and that that is, of course, famously why Kevin Keegan blew up, of course, because Ferguson had made a comment about Newcastle basically getting an easy win over Forest because they weren't going to bother trying. It was just some context towards the end of the season. And Kevin Keegan just absolutely lost it because he thought it was insulting to Nottingham Forest and obviously just really got under his skin. But as we know, famously at the Newcastle um, title challenge crumpled after that press conference and Alex Ferguson was old whiskey nose. He was, he was holding his uh, <laughs> old high, high into the sky and saying, thank you very much, Kevin. And thank you very much, Sky Sports. So, yes, we should keep it. Just get rid of those pre-match ones. And on that note, we are going to wrap it up, gentlemen. Uh, great show. Dino, thanks again, brother. We're looking forward to the Euros, mate. Wales will go okay. Don't worry about that. Yeah, that'll be all right. Don't worry about Come it. Back. As long as now you're 11, man. Question for Dean, just a quick one. If England's playing Wales, who do you bury for? Um, no, I'm definitely One word, Wales, one word. But, but, well, Wales first and yes. England second. Okay. There you go. See you, Dino. See ya. Derek, thank you. Thanks, gents. Michael. Well, congratulations, Rob, on your wonderful uh, prediction that Chelsea would win. Thanks, mate. That's the, you've only raised it five times during the show. We might as well end on it. <laughs> I'm just flabbergasted that he's um, showing some uh, at least lame attempt at humility. <laughs> thank you, Rob. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> and thank you, Tamo. We're going to have a busy, busy week watching uh, the Socceroos and the Matildas next week, and we're going to look forward to the Euros, and we're going to have six weeks of a football feast. And we hope you'll join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.